Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. I've been a, a longtime uh, reader of Anil Dash's work. He's a he's a technologist a, a, and a writer, and now a podcaster with a great new podcast called Function. Um, and I was really happy to uh, sit down and talk to him about Facebook primarily, but social media, how the web has changed, how we might uh, sort of rescue what has lost in the era of the big corporate conglomerates. I think if you spend time online, uh, you are going to find this to be a really interesting and important conversation. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, my guest today, Anil Dash, is the CEO of Glitch and the host of the podcast Function. Um, I'm really glad to have him on the show. Uh, he's, uh, he's, like me, an old-time blogger. Uh, we, we've never actually met, but I've been sort of internet acquaintances uh, as long as as people have been interneting. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I, I thought we were going to talk about, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has been in the, in the news a lot, uh, mm-hmm. uh, transcending the boundaries between technology and politics, um, talking about, I, I guess, narrowly speaking. <laughs> that's a very charitable description. Transcending boundaries. That's what I think of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> he put a camera in my living room. It's transcending boundaries. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, a lot of things happen on Facebook, but but one thing mm-hmm. that happens on Facebook is political advertising, right? Absolutely. And they came up with this policy that said uh, they were going to uh, exempt, I guess, candidate ads from any kind of rules about accuracy, uh, which got him a lot of criticism and then mm-hmm. provoked a big sort of media push. He did a sp- speech about free speech and and op-eds and and so he's a he's a champion of freedom as as I understand uh, it. right that's yeah sure <laughs> that's one take well i mean what's what what's your take you know i have i have a dog in this fight <laughs> i i've been building social platforms for 20 years mm-hmm. i first met mark zuckerberg because i was uh, helping manage a community called live journal which was probably the first uh, social network to reach 10 million users and and actually, if you look at the movie, The Social Network, at the beginning of it, they they the the character, the guy playing Zuck, um, is on uh, Live Journal, mm-hmm. and that's one of the few parts of that movie that's actually literally true. Like that did happen. He <laughs> was at Harvard using this platform. Anyway, so he had built the very very early version of Facebook and had basically wanted to figure out how do I scale this thing? How do I make the technology so I can grow to handle millions of users? And he came by our office mm-hmm. um, to be like, how do you you know how how do you make this thing go? And you know, I was I was not the 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 coder in the room that was answering those questions, but you know, that was the sort of first passing glimpse I had with him. And it was like a time when 
it was exciting to think that people could come online and connect and form social networks. Mm -hmm. And there was a real optimism and idealism about why you would do so. And I'm not one of those good old days people. Like there was a lot of things that were broken and messed up back then too. But, but the point being that was the ethos. And so to go from that into not just political misinformation, which obviously is rampant and widespread on Facebook and has been, and, and has caused serious social harm, but you know, I think especially globally where you have things like, you know, uh, uh, an ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya in Myanmar that is being really catalyzed by misinformation on WhatsApp, which is also owned by Facebook. Like this is large scale mass violence that the people carrying it out are saying we use a Facebook platform to do so. That is, uh, that is way, way past the potential harms we had imagined if you go back to 15 years ago, where mm -hmm. we're like, well, people might be rude to each other in the comments, but it's not going to be, <laughs> you know, it's not going to be that bad. Well, and when I when I listened to him speak, and he, he talked a lot about sort of the <clears throat> disintermediation of gatekeepers and mm -hmm. empowering of people to sort of have their voices, you know, admittedly sometimes for ill, but but also for better. I thought to my head, right, what it reminded me of was not Facebook, it felt to me like he was describing the pre-Facebook internet when a mm -hmm. lot of us were sort of online publishing, whether it was on LiveJournal, whether it was on Blogger, whether it was on mm -hmm. TypePad. And it was this kind of bottom-up, disintermediated media. But the, the central thing about that to me is that it was incredibly decentralized. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, for context, at the time, talking about 2003, 2004, 2005, my job, I, I had one of those very Silicon Valley, you know, jobs at a startup. My job title was evangelist, chief <laughs> evangelist. And my job was to go and evangelize blogs, which sounds absurd, but that was the job. <laughs> and it being kinder to myself in retrospect, <laughs> some of it was to give tools to people so they could build Gawker, so they could build Huffington Post. So they could have, there was a guy named Kevin Seitz who was on the ground in Iraq in the lead up to the Iraq war, reporting on stuff that mainstream media or traditional journalism at that point, the you know, people were still watching TV news at night mm -hmm. on, on the major cable networks. Nobody was telling these stories. And so that part was really real. And, and like, I'm that person. Right. I didn't go to college. I didn't know anybody. I blogged about tech until I got the attention of people in tech that were like, this guy knows something and may be worth paying attention to. And so I, I fully understand and even on, honestly still believe in the democratization of this stuff. And, you know, we built a, you mentioned TypePad. This was like a, the WordPress of its day. It was a blogging platform that we did in like 03. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, I helped launch this thing. And within a year, one of the first blogs I started following was this new writer who had never been published anywhere. Um, and it was Ta-Nehisi Coates. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? And it was like, he didn't, at that point, I don't think he could have gone to an editor and said, let me get a global platform for ideas that can shape a conversation that society needs to have. Right. I think he said, I can start a blog and I'm going to write something and maybe that'll open a door. So that part of tear down the gatekeepers, let somebody in, be able to tell the truth, share your voice. I think that is 100% was an animating force of the early social web and of the context that Zuck was aware of when he created Facebook because everybody around him, that's what we all were doing. But it twisted. Right. And and I mean, part of the the the, the nature of how that worked, I mean, in case people are out there don't don't even know what these like old guys are talking about is, mm -hmm. you know, you would gain audience 
on those kind of platforms in a sort of deliberative, conversational manner, right? Mm -hmm, People mm -hmm. would link to each other. Yeah, it was one person at a time. Right. And and you would build, and so you would have some loyal readers, and you would have some kind of recommendations, and there could be arguments, and there could be debates, but there wasn't exactly virality, uh, Mm -mm. as we understand it, in, in the social web. And there wasn't the sort of engagement optimization that exists on on current platforms at all, really. And people would, you know, build up reputations over time. What what it reminds me of actually most is the way podcasts work now. Very much so. Right, where, you know, here you are on the show and, you know, part of the idea is to sort of cross-pollinate the audiences, but like – Fundamentally, things spread through word of mouth. They spread through reviews. And there isn't like a centralized hub that even though there were blogging services, they didn't like own the content or the distribution of it. It's no coincidence that that's how podcasting works today because it grew out of those technologies from that era of blogs or social media, whatever you want to call it. But, But the core thing to understand is it was compared to the social apps we use today, much more high friction. There was not, you come in and we've pre-selected a a set of feeds that are going to show up and you're going to see this stuff and you can like it or you could not like it, but Mm -hmm. that's pretty much what you're going to see in your face. This was, is a much, as you said, a much more deliberative, much more one-to-one and much more incremental kind of thing. So you would build an audience over a long period of time and a couple of things hadn't happened that skewed things. One was those giant news feeds that everything got shoved into and the algorithm decides what you see. We didn't have those. There were you know, apps that would let you read a number of blogs, but it's basically whatever you'd already chosen, whatever you'd mm-hmm. already discovered. And also uh, one of the more pernicious things that I think people hadn't aren't really aware of in the current web because it's been so long since it happened was the rise of, of Google and there are AdWords and AdSense platforms, which are you know the ads that they put, put on people's sites, tied to them becoming the dominant search player. It's hard to imagine now, but at that point when blogs were taking off, everybody wasn't using Google. There uh-huh. were multiple search engines. People were using different tools. And so the the now it's a multi-billion dollar industry, but search engine optimization or whatever, that didn't exist. Right. So there's no social optimization, no search engine optimization. So you're not writing for an algorithm. That's what happens. Like you had m- millions of people get trained to create content that fed an algorithm, whether it's Google's algorithm or Instagram's or whomever. And before that all happened, rather than writing for an algorithm, you were writing for other people in hopes that you would build a relationship with them so compelling that they would remember to type in the name of your website manually and come back to it. Mm -hmm. Well, you could be on somebody's blog roll. You could get... Right, right. Um, Or their bookmarks or something. But I mean, (laughs) the point being, they were going to make a choice and remember you. And it's a very different thing than I don't know why this showed up in my Instagram Explorer. Right. I mean, and it was a a humanistic process. And I mean, and I can say as as a writer how much my work has changed over the years as I've sort of, you know, the, the platforms have evolved and my understanding of them has evolved. And we now, you know, if you, if you work at Vox, you will hear about SEO and you will hear about doing search demand posts, right? That we will see that mm-hmm. what it is people are searching for. And we will, you know, we try to think of like 
articles of merit uh, that that sort of fit those search keywords. Um, and, and for a while, there was an incredible Facebook sharing boom that has now sort of withdrawn. <laughs> but, you know, we knew sort of how to how to optimize for social sharing. And that's become a really important part of, of media work, whereas uh, traditional sort of blog type stuff, it, it, there, there was none of that, right? You wrote, I, I, don't, I, I mean, I guess you could say you were optimizing for like human enjoyment uh, or something like that, but it was, you know. <laughs> it was connection. I mean, I, I really right. think at a fundamental level, it was a connection strong enough that people are like, oh, I know that person. Mm-hmm. I know her. I know that guy. That That's the person who talks about this thing. And I like their perspective. And also the writing was different too, because you were assuming a relationship. Yeah. You were assuming somebody would go back at least a couple of blog posts and be like, oh, I see what you're talking about. I got some context. So because we, again, didn't have those algorithms and you didn't have the the some of the dynamics of the, today's social apps, there was also not the gotcha thing, mm-hmm. right? Because like a lot of my writing these days, the exhausting part is I have to write like two paragraphs of throat clearing and apologies at the beginning of like, I'm not going to cover every scenario. Please don't take this out of context. I'm not speaking to everything in the world. I just want to talk about this one topic. And then after you do enough of the like, please don't come at me with Mm -hmm. the thing that I think is legit, but I'm just not talking about right now, then I can actually talk about the topic I'm talking about. And I understand why that dynamic is there because people, Mm -hmm. they want to make sure their voice is heard. They want to make sure their perspective is included and that you're being thoughtful to the larger issues. But the only reason that necessity arises is because that you're assuming somebody's going to see your thing not knowing who you are, not knowing how they found it, shared by somebody who framed it antagonistically and or did the like, you know, on Twitter, the the like the quote retweet and it was like, look at this dumbass, uh-huh. you know, and, and so you end up having to, it changes how you write, even if you're not paying attention to Facebook's algorithm, even if you're not paying attention to Google's algorithm or, or you know, whoever, whichever platform you're trying to appease YouTube or, or you know, TikTok or whatever. Even if all you're doing is, I just don't want to get yelled at because I just want to talk about this idea and I don't want to cover every possible nuance mm-hmm. in, the, in, the, in the threat that this gets mega distributed in a way I didn't anticipate. That's hard work and it's a, it's a completely different creative space than when you were writing with an assumption of a relationship to your audience. And, and I think it's a deterrent to sort of mm-hmm. what one of the things we used to see, which was amateur people doing this, right? Like not as a as a job, but as a hobby, as a I am mm-hmm. a knowledgeable and passionate person. And mm-hmm. you know, so 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 blogging technology reduced the friction to publishing. It wasn't like pitching an op-ed to the newspaper or something like that. Right. Uh, but now as you say, right, it's like you have to write very defensively if you want your actual point to be heard, which becomes, I think, you know, for a normal person, like a pretty good reason not to do it at all, yeah. right? And, and that combination of writing defensively and attenuating your con- your content or your topic so that it appeases the algorithm, mm-hmm. the dual influences of those two forces is like, man, how would you ever have personal expression? Right. And people can participate now, you know— it, as secondary actors on the platforms, right? So it's like your decision to click the like button or to reshare things or to retweet this or give the little mm-hmm. heart there, right? That becomes uh, – for, for the – bulk of people, right, instead of actual participatory content creation, as in sort of at least my utopian visions of 15 years ago, (laughs) it's this like, it's not quite passive, but it's this like basically passive participation Mm -hmm. in the feed where you become another input into the sort of algorithmic monster. Yeah. And that idea of we were going to empower people to get past gatekeepers so they could share their unfiltered voice with the world 
was absolutely an animating force of social media and absolutely has been largely quashed from social media. And no one person is more responsible for that change than Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, and that well, that, that that's where I wanted to go, right? That's why it was it was fascinating to me to see him sort of cloak himself in that idea of a, of a fifth estate and popular participation because I feel like what he has done with Facebook <laughs> has been so antithetical to that. I mean, it, it's so intellectually dishonest; it's infuriating. It's actually the second most intellectually dishonest thing he did that week. The first <laughs> being him saying that Facebook was created to give a platform to people at Harvard who wanted to protest the Iraq war. Yes. It was hot or not. <laughs> it was so that he could rate girls in his dorm. Yes. And 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 like and that is documented history. Like everybody's got receipts. There's a movie about it. People <laughs> were there. We've got screenshots. Some of the women who were rated will be like I was on the site, my photo was there. Like every bit of evidence you possibly need to know what the actual truth was is out there. You know, the attempt to say, no, what I meant was mm-hmm. we were we were out here protesting Iraq. Please, right. please, please. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, even if you forget about that was that was face smash. Uh, but, you know, mm-hmm. early Facebook, right, it had no um, editorial element nope. at all. There was no right? there was no news feed. You, you wouldn't uh, if all you had was a wall where you're, you're able to set up a profile about yourself and list your major and your interests. Mm-hmm. What good would that do for protesting Iraq? You couldn't share anything. There was no feed. So, like, it doesn't even make sense for what the product was at that time. It, it was almost like a dating app on some level. Mm-hmm. Um, I mm-hmm. mean, it did other things. You would say who your friends were. It was kind of like a white pages, uh, you know, yeah. where you could find out how to how to contact people. But, I mean, I remember, um, you know, it's like you could meet somebody at a party and one way of, like, following up with them is you would, you would friend them on Facebook. And, you know, it would be a way of making connections like that. But the whole sort of editorial side of Facebook, for good or for ill, came way, way later. Yeah. I mean, I didn't go to college, so I didn't have access to Facebook in 04. So I saw it over the shoulder of a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, this is some skull and bones shit. It's a private club for Ivy (laughs) League people. Right. That's all I need to know. (laughs) My opinion hasn't changed much 15 years later. I'm like, yep, that's still what it is. Now they let the rest of us in and we're supposed to feel grateful. Uh I don't any more than I would feel grateful if I got invited to like a skull and bones society meeting. I'd be like, that is not to my taste. And I know that you don't really want me here. And I don't think anything good is going to come from me being here. <laughs> oh, well, but it's, I mean, it's quite different from a Skull and Bones society yeah, meeting. Right? I don't know. I haven't been. I am just guessing <laughs> I haven't been that, to you know, a, a private clubhouse for Mark Zuckerberg is kind of indistinguishable sure. from that to me but it's, from my perspective. But it's so big, right? I mean, the, the, the front yeah. side of this is like, like, why do we care, right? Mm-hmm. But it's like, this is not just like some web service that you might decide no. you don't like, right? Which, you know, that Mm-mm. was Facebook you can't opt t- out. 2005, no opt out. right? But now it's like yeah. Facebook is dominates uh, so much of the media. Well, also, I think people who are not technologists have a hard time conceiving of Facebook's model of how they turn us all into data inputs for their system. I joke right at the top of, you know, they put a camera in your living room. <laughs> I, I think the worst job in the world, uh, at least in the developed world, has got to be marketing Facebook portal, trying to convince people to put a Facebook camera in their living room. Uh-huh. Like, good good luck to them all. But that's like, that's the easy joke. The The thing that is more extraordinary is we can feel creepy about, oh, I think they know what I've clicked like on. And I think they know what I, you know, what, what content I read on their site. What we can't imagine is virtually every site you go to that has a Facebook like button or whatever other data from Facebook, they're tracking that. What they, what the messages are, the content is that you send to your friends. 
which things you choose to linger on. When you type a comment and don't submit it, you decide better. I don't really need to say that to that person about their shot or their photo that they posted on Facebook. And then you delete the text. They capture that also, right? And and then that's, even then we're like, oh, well, that's kind of creepy. I don't like that. Then the harder thing to imagine is somebody who has never created a Facebook account, but who appears in the background of photos of multiple people who have taken pictures of them who are in public, or the photo got shared even without their permission, as happens at you know big public events. Facebook is able to synthesize a profile of who that person is and who their social network must be, because they can deduce this person appeared in the background photos of four different people that all work in that same office. They're one of their coworkers. We don't know their name, but all of a sudden we know their geography, we could probably infer their income. We probably know where they like to have lunch because they probably have lunch with their coworkers, judging by these photos. They can create a complete profile with an uncanny amount of data and information and perspective on you if you have never been to the Facebook website, if you don't own a phone. So the, the idea of opting out of Facebook, if you live in any part of the world that is connected to the internet, is pretty much impossible. See, that's fascinating. I think we should take a, a quick break here for, for our own ads. Um, and then I, I want to delve more <laughs> into that, that sort of opt-out question. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Okay, so w- one thing you said there that you you, you touch on briefly, but I, but I want people to to understand because um, I I think a lot of people maybe don't know this, but is that Facebook basically tracks you 
throughout your activities on the web, not just your activities on on Facebook, right? Because mm-hmm. they, they co-opt other sites into sort of, uh, I, I don't know what, like importing Facebook trackers. Mm-hmm. Can, can you explain yeah, how that right. works? Like you, you know, Absolutely. you know, technology. Sure. A little bit. The, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of incentives for even well-intentioned, thoughtful websites to use Facebook services, mm-hmm. right? So w- the simple one is they want to put a like button on something so you can share it. You're like, okay, that makes sense. They want to make it easy to share because sharing helps them get traffic or audience. They have advertising, right? So you, uh, if you want to be able to increase distribution of your site, or if you want to get better ad rates or make sure there's more data being captured, you can either directly or indirectly send data to Facebook. So maybe you have a partnership with them or what is increasingly happening is data brokers are saying, we want to buy a aggregated profile of all the users on your website. If you have a content site or you run a a little store online Mm -hmm. and we want to understand all these users. And then we're going to sell that to Facebook because that aggregated data of saying, well, people who like this cookie tin also like this doily, mm-hmm. right? Like that related data is very valuable, but it's it's still out there. There's still parts of the internet that are not in Facebook. And so any of those places, those data can be sold back. So that can happen really without your permission or knowledge. And so there's almost no place that's substantial online that you spend time that is not sending data back to Facebook. And we're talking about Facebook, but this is true of Google as well. And so so they're forming a very, very complete profile. Right. And and this is, I mean, it's part of why they've been so effective and why, you know, the, the media business mm-hmm. has been hurt so much is traditionally, yep. if you wanted to advertise to the Newsweek audience, you would have to buy an ad at Newsweek, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But Facebook and Google, they both, like, they know everything about everyone. So they really are able, from an ad sales perspective, to disintermediate publishers and yeah. give you whatever audience it is that you want based on their, um, you know, from a technical standpoint, greatly superior information about who everybody is and, you know, who might mm-hmm. be interested in shoes or, or what what kinds of stuff, things like that. It's powerful, right? It's an incredibly powerful technical breakthrough in terms of advertising. But it's like, I don't know. Advertising has never been, I think, like humanity at its at its finest, right? Um, <laughs> what was the saving grace of advertising was its inefficiency. Mm, so yeah. when you, when you had in the TV era and the print era, and uh, each of the earlier era, even billboards, like the reason Burma Shave could mm-hmm. do wild billboards on the side of the road with rhyming poetry. It's because they're like, we just got to do something to break through. We want to get some attention. But also, if 99% of people who drive by this don't buy razors from Burma Shave or shaving cream or whatever, no big deal. That's fine. Sure. Doesn't call it, That's fine. Like, this is the best way to go. And and that that inefficiency funds and has funded amazing things. So, you know, on the back of most issues of Vanity Fair or Vogue, like the sort of, you know, the, the premier Condé Nast titles, you'll have a Rolex ad or you'll have a Volvo ad or, you know, whatever, you know, Mercedes probably more likely than Volvo, but, but you'll have a luxury ad. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the most expensive printed surfaces that you can put an image onto is that back cover of a Condé Nast magazine. And the reason why was, one, those products are really expensive and high margin and they can afford to do it. But two, they were like, it doesn't matter if like three people buy this Rolex watch that see this and a million people look at the magazine like, that's a nice picture mm-hmm. because the, the economics would work. But if you are somebody who's selling any other watch that's not based on that brand, and you're like, I would instead like to put my money into buying the attention of people who are interested in watches right now. Y- of course you would choose that. That's a very right. reasonable choice. It's like, yeah, well, yeah, I don't want to, like, I'm not just trying to fund, 
a great photo shoot in Vogue. I'm trying to get people to want to buy watches. And so the efficiency of that logically makes perfect sense. And it is less expensive for you to go to, say, to Facebook and to Google, mm-hmm. give me people with watch purchase intent, right? Which is what they would call it. But what happens of that is we lose all of the ability to fund the inefficient things like, uh, you know, magazine articles and content that's happening on TV and, and you know, free uh, ad-supported TV and all these other things. The, the, that inefficiency funded a lot of social good and also was the thing that I think people in the advertising industry usually told themselves, right. I'm enabling that. This is why it's okay. And it also some rare times, the the advertising itself was elevated to some form of art. So if you talk about, you know, I'd like to buy the world of Coke or you know, people can talk about a commercial that made them cry. Mm-hmm. They'd be like, oh, there's a long distance ad and it made me cry. I remember people saying this and it's like, okay, look, somebody put some craft into that. They did some work to actually, like the reason we can all sing so many ad jingles if you grew <laughs> up in the TV era is that people who work into making good ads. That is not the case with a text ad that is micro-targeted to like, we have, you know, we have detected that you have watch purchase intent and we would like to inflict watch upon you. Right. You know, like that, that's like, that's not, that's a completely different thing. There's not, that's not the same sort of creative impulse. And so all of that is to say, it is completely understandable how that shift happened, but nobody talked about this being a trade-off where we're like, you know, I worked at the Village Voice Mm -hmm. and not at the era that I was there, but before that they had done some really incredible, you know, journalism and they did some while I was there as well. But, you know, the music journalism, the arts journalism, that was incredible. And it was funded in large part by the inefficiency of ad targeting for real estate in New York City, Mm -hmm. of which apartment you want to move to. And now that market is efficient. And now the Village Voice is dead. Right. And, and you know, and part of it, you mentioned the sort of luxury products, right? And and so part of how that helped work also is that, you know, so it's a, it's a fancy, expensive watch. It's a fancy car. So you make like a nice, fancy ad. You want to find a publication that you think rich people are maybe reading. But you yep. also want like a, like a brand alignment around the idea yes. the of halo. being yeah. high-minded, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like yeah. one reason that, you know, a lot of uh, – what you would consider normal editorial values, like we are going to take on important stories. We are going to hire fact checkers to make sure this stuff is Mm -hmm. right. To the extent that you could make sense of that, it's like, why are we doing this as a business, right? You would say in part, well, you know, we are trying to sell upscale, upmarket ads. We don't want to be a trashy publication. There might be a lot of people buying National Enquirer, but they are not getting the caliber of advertisers that we're getting because that's not a a well-brand-aligned medium. And by decontextualizing everything, you sort of flatten the editorial values in a way that, you know, was not expected and I think has not been, you know, incredibly constructive. Right. Well, and distribution used to cost money, mm-hmm. right? So if you wanted to print like glossy, nice photo shoot in some fashion magazine, or you wanted to do that serious journalism in a, in a you know, in a New Yorker or whatever, um, th- th- that was sort of, you know, different signals of production value, but also they controlled a printing press that could do that. They controlled distribution. They could mail all those issues out and get them to people. And since that cost money, there were these barriers. This goes to that ge- gatekeeping thing. And what happened in the switch to digital distribution became, you know, so much less expensive. Um, and that's one of the things that's very fraught about Facebook is they're choosing what they amplify and what they distribute. But as a result, even if your advertisers are shady supplements, as for most of the mm-hmm. like alt-right, you know, mainstream alt-right content is all funded by like shady supplements. 
it doesn't matter that they are crappy advertisers. One, because that social signaling is gone. People are like, I don't care mm-hmm. that liars liars are telling me new, lies on the news when the advertisers are liars also. Do you know what I mean? Like, like it doesn't sure. like the, the whole thing is sort of brought low by that. But also, that's all the money you need is pill money mm-hmm. in order to get distribution because distribution is so much cheaper. And and then we have the actually, I think the biggest thing that I wish had come up in the conversation with Zuckerberg and that I I've, I've been trying to sort of bang the drum on. And a lot of people have is this idea of not free speech but free reach, mm-hmm. right? And and it's what do the platforms amplify. And what do they put in front of you? And what are the ways by which you can get unpaid distribution? And and for context, you know, most publishers, most people that are putting content out there, even advertisers, you have to pay to promote your message mm-hmm. on Facebook or other networks. And the exceptions are if you write something so hateful or so false or so inflammatory that people organically share it because they're like, wow, look at this thing, then you can hack this system and you can get monetary value of promotion for free in exchange for all you have to do is be willing to lie. Yeah, and I mean, this is really the key thing to me, the like ball that was hidden in his whole dialogue about this is that, you know, when he came to the specific question of why are you allowing these ads, he's saying, hey, you know, it's not for us to decide, right? But that's not at all how the platforms function on an editorial level, right? It is not a passive distribution mechanism the way that, you know, there are people who own the um, internet infrastructure, right? And bits just kind of pass around, blah, 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 blah. But Facebook has procedures, like a non-transparent procedure for deciding what kinds of things get promoted and what kinds of things uh, don't. And mm-hmm. it's it, it's turned them into the sort of editor-in-chief of the universe, except it's a <laughs> – but it's a company that just – I mean, I don't know if people will believe this, but, like, if you want to run a journalism company, you need to hire journalists to work at it. And, mm-hmm. like, fundamentally, most of us have, you know, some – we're human beings with normal flaws and, you know, we like money and, and everything else. But, like, mostly, like, we did get into this line of work for, for like, some kind of reason and have yeah. some, some – Well, you sure didn't get into it for the money, right? Yeah, well, I mean, at least not primarily, right? I mean, it was like yeah. something we wanted to do, right? Totally understandable reasons. Like, people who go to work for a company like Facebook don't do it because they have passion for journalism, right? Yeah, right. And yet yeah. their work now is driving what happens, right? And based on an idea that, you know, if you had gone to, like, any kind of editor at any point in history and said, like, well, is the most important value in an article that it just, like, gets people stirred up? They'd be like, no, that's that's crazy. Well, it's worse than that. It's I think there are a large number of people at Facebook, Google, whatever, for whom they're like, yeah, I, I never went into this to create platforms for amplifying journalism. I think in recent years, there are some who do. They're like, I'm going to go here and I'm going to do good. Um, but but for the most part, they, they're they indifferent to it. What I think is worse is they see the complaints about you're amplifying this kind of misinformation or distortion or whatever as a nuisance, a problem to be solved in the same category as spam, right? And again, for people who may not remember, email spam used to be way worse than it is now. Like you almost never get email spam in your Gmail or whatever. But it was a thing for a long time. You used to have to just trudge through deleting tons and tons of junk mail. And then all of the accumulated wisdom of the coding industry, the technology industry, put its mind towards like, let's solve this. And they did a lot of smart things, one of which was sort of limiting. You basically, if you're not sending email from one of the major email services, Mm -hmm. 
your messages are much less likely to get through. Mm-hmm. So they picked who's allowed to send email, which services are allowed to send email. And it actually made sense. And for the most part, we don't care because we're like, okay, I'll just use Gmail or I'll use, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know, AOL, whatever, right? And and so, you know, or my work email, which they'll find one of these providers and handle it for me. There was this attenuation of who was allowed to send messages in that platform. But the net, you know, result was it not that one of the vendors controlled which messages get through. It was a consensus-driven, what we call in tech standards-driven mm-hmm. sort of process. And- the interesting thing about it is it was because of the nuisance factor. It's like, God, we got to shut these people up complaining about spam. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, what I see in the immune response at Facebook about people talking about bias and amplification of journalism versus misinformation is they see the entire conversation as these, these, these people are spammers. Mm-hmm. They are distracting us. They're a nuisance keeping us from doing the cool stuff we want to do. And- we need to stop them complaining. Mm-hmm. We don't need to like understand the problem. We need to stop them complaining. So the entire approach is this is sort of very informed by preventing the complaint as opposed to reducing the harm. Uh-huh. And and interestingly, there's probably more spam emails sent these days than there ever has been in history. Mm-hmm. But we don't see it. So we consider the problem solved because it gets filtered out of your inbox. And, and they're coming into this the same way, which is if we can dodge and change the topic and reframe the conversation as Zuck is doing, we will stop hearing, we will cause enough confusion and noise that we will stop hearing people say, you are amplifying lies, you are promoting information that causes disinformation or causes violent threats or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the conversation will take this shape of a different form and that will count as success, as opposed to what we want to do is stop the spread of information that threatens people, that causes actual harm in the real world. Let's take another break and then and then come back and, and, and solve all these problems. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. So, you know, you you, you get to the, the back third of a podcast uh, and, and it naturally the question arises, like, what what do we what do we do about all of this? I mean, I think at, <laughs> at this point, you know, what, one thing that has frustrated me now for for years is the sort of uh, cycle of like people berate Mark Zuckerberg in public mm-hmm. about something. Yeah. And then he kind of apologizes because, as you said, I mean, this goes back to like when he was a college student and, mm-hmm. you know, like hacked into um, dorm rooms, online Facebooks, and he put mm-hmm. these pictures up and you know he was like I'm sorry I'm sorry guys I I, I got it I get it now um, and then he you know he went on ahead and this is like a, a, a I think there's a saying that it's better to beg forgiveness than ask permission um, and yeah. he he truly lives that to the max and so it seems like something else has to be done absolutely you know he's Lucy with the football and we're all Charlie Brown <laughs> and you know this time he is not going to let us kick the ball. Like just to be clear, <laughs> and and I really and it's wild for me because when when the social network came out, this is almost ten years ago now. There was there was a New Yorker story on it, and I got quoted in it basically saying like Zuck doesn't know what he doesn't know. I thought I was writing the death knell in my career. 
Mm-hmm. I really did. I was in Silicon Valley. I thought I'm never, I'm never going to work in this town again. But I was sort of like, you know, fuck it. Like I gotta, I, I gotta tell the <laughs> truth. I gotta see what I see here. And it was really interesting because uh, you know Facebook PR at the time was like, you know, how dare you? He's helped the world. And and then a lot of people were like, hmm, hmm, not like you're right. Not you know, we agree 100. percent But like, hmm, there's something, there's something here. Mm-hmm. And I don't, and I think a lot of people sort of had a very early inkling, like I said, as long as 10 years ago. And, and yet it's only gotten worse. It, we've only gotten more entrenched. We've only gotten systems. So, so this isn't, this isn't new information and it's not something we, that we, insiders, at least in tech, it's not something we didn't know about. And, um, and what I look at is, you know, a couple things. One is it is possible for us to have a web that is not dependent on social networks on two or three companies tightly controlling what information we access. And the reason I know it's possible is because we had that web for most of the history of the web. Mm-hmm. It's only in the very recent years that that's changed. So that's really key. Like first thing to understand is it is not wild-eyed science fiction. You know, it's not dreaming too big to say we could have a web that's mostly made by people and mostly decentralized because we have had it. We had it recently. And it's only a very short period of time that the aberration of us centralizing into a couple of tightly controlled sites has happened. So it's like, that's number one. I think, I think number two is the, the technological benefits, the features that get us to use Instagram all day, that get us to use Facebook all day are now technically capable of existing in the rest of the web. Like part of the reason why it was so convenient to go to YouTube and watch a bunch of videos when it took off was it was really, really hard to put a video online in right. 2006. Like it was incredibly hard. And like, I had the technical knowledge. I've been doing it for about 10 years at that point. And I was just like, oh my, this is a godsend. This is an unbelievably better experience. And it's kind of worth almost, and and also the other thing I didn't understand then is the venture capitalists, the investors were subsidizing us being able to put this video on there because it was expensive as hell. I mean, YouTube lost boatloads of money. Right. They lost so much money for so long that, you know, and this is pre-WeWork and Uber, it was inconceivable back then that you could lose millions of dollars for like years at a time and people would let you keep going. And and of course they did make it work. And it turned out that that is a, a model of subsidy that can build a very large valuable business, but that was non-obvious at that moment. And so I don't dismiss or denigrate that these companies have provided platforms that do a lot of good. It is a good for the world that people can organize in a Facebook group and get together and clean up the playground in their, in their neighborhood. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's good, but that capability they provided, just like the ability to upload a video that, you know, on YouTube or to share a photo on Instagram, that is no longer only possible through these couple of platforms. There are lots of other ways to do it. There are lots of other places to do it. Normal people can run apps or go to sites that do these other things. And so the core capabilities, like the technology level, are no longer exclusive to them. Then the only remaining thing is the people. Our friends, our family, you know, our coworkers. And again, I see this every day where like, you know, tons of companies are using Slack or Microsoft Teams. They're all, these are all tools that didn't exist five years ago. Right. And so millions of people have changed every single day what the first app they fire up when they go to work to talk to each other and changed it pretty much permanently and very, very quickly. Behaviors can shift very quickly to tools that we couldn't have imagined before. And, you know, I see this, you know, this is talking my own 
you know, book a little bit here, but the, 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 you know, the company I run glitch is a community where people build apps. It's, it's like YouTube, but for apps and also without an algorithm to choose what you see. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, people have built millions of apps. It's like three, 4 million apps, like twice as many as on Apple's app store. And they're all made by people. And there's no, we don't tell you like, you know, we'll do, here's a featured thing today, mm-hmm. but we're not telling you. And then here's the next one. And here's what you got to look at. We don't gather any data. You can build an entire app without ever logging in. There are lots of new sites, new communities, new things coming up across the web. These sort of like little splintered and they're small communities. They're not going to have a billion users, but they might have a million users. And you might be talking about knitting, or you might be talking about your favorite musical instrument, or you might be talking about your hobby or whatever it is. You might be talking about transit policy, like the thing that you're into, but all those things have a home and people are starting to imagine that world outside of it simply happening on Facebook and on YouTube. But here's what I what I wonder, though, because, I mean, you use the example of, of YouTube where originally YouTube sort of brought the first technology that was easy for people to use on a mass basis to upload videos. They brought a mm-hmm. financial model that made it viable. And you're saying, well, now that technology is more widespread, so we could sort of move to a less centralized era. But we were talking mm-hmm. before about sort of classic blogs, right? And so that technology technology for text, right? The ability to write your own, you know, decent looking functional text-based website that really predated the kind of centralized algorithmic web. Um, And notwithstanding that, I mean, there was a time in my life when I was like, no, like we're going to hold out, right? Like, like this is, this is so much better than than social optimizations. And then I was like, you know, I, I don't know, like this is my living. And, you know, I was, I was plowed under by, by the wave simply because the scale of the social audience is so large that it mm-hmm. devalued the sort of um, monetary basis for yeah. for other formats of, of publishing. So, you know, I mean, the, the technology uh, is good, but it only works if the, the economics support it. And precisely because these platforms are, they're so aggressive sort of data miners and ad targeters, uh, they have mm-hmm. a very compelling value proposition that seems to me just inherently difficult to break. It could be. Um, I'm not saying this is possible. <laughs> I do think it is though. And and what I look at is, you know, you're talking about the cost of attention and the value of attention. Mm-hmm. How, how much does it cost to get people's attention? And what is the value once you've got it? And can that be something that's sustainable? There's a very large Facebook community of uh, Virginia Wolf fans that just migrated off of Facebook. Hmm. They're like, we're shutting our Facebook group down. And th- there's there's a trend of this that are happening that are going to these little sites. And we see that on Glitch. There's a, there's a startup out in the Valley called uh, Mighty Networks that is seeing these little mini communities spring up. There's, there's a lot of these things. Sure. And, and what you find is them bolting together a combination of a little storefront, an e-commerce storefront they make online, a Patreon you know, subscription kind of thing. Once in a while, a, a crowdfunding campaign on Kickstarter, Indiegogo, whatever, some merchandise mm-hmm. and, um, and some sponsors you know, for their podcast or for their blog. But they they cobble together a varied revenue stream, which is like everything you can kind of hustle together to, to make some money. And it's not a ton of money. It's not a huge scale. But it is absolutely comparable to native monetization on any platform, especially as the values of those go down. Mm-hmm. And they're able to cement the relationship with their audience, their fans, their patrons, their community into enough to be able to sustain themselves. And, and then they feel freed. And you see more and more creators doing this 
you know, for their video content. You're seeing more and more creators do this for uh, things like a podcast show where they're like, you know, we, we want, you know, subscribers to help us exist and do this thing. And I think we're going to see more and more communities do it too, where they're going to be like the trade-offs. And this will happen in, you know, uh, more privileged communities first, but I think this is going to happen very broadly. I think very vulnerable communities, you know, it's wild to me to think about some of the activists I see that are working on very sensitive, th- you know, police violence, mm-hmm. and gun violence and things like that. And are like, and we organize on a Facebook group. And I'm like, you cannot possibly think that is safe, hmm. right? They can't possibly be a good choice. Like we know many, many, many of these institutions, organizations uh, give over information with no warrant to almost any legal authority. And, and you know, we've seen a history of abuse. We've seen, you know, surveillance. We've seen a lot of harms come this way. I think as more people organize that way, they reflexively are going to say, you should think about the tools you're using. The first inklings I've seen of this are many, it's especially internationally, not so much in the, in the mm-hmm. States yet, but people being very thoughtful about what messaging app do you use? Do you use Signal? Do you use Telegram? As opposed to, do you use WhatsApp? Do you use Facebook Messenger? Mm-hmm. And And all those are choices about, you know, what are we going to be in the world? I don't think anything ever kills Facebook. I don't think anything ever kills YouTube or Google or any of these platforms, nor should it. They have their place. I absolutely think as long as they provide a source of cheap ability to gather attention, that's going to have utility to people. Mm -hmm. But, but once in your case, you have had people that have known your work and you're writing online for the better part of two decades now, Mm -hmm. and they know who you are and what you're about. And so they go to a site and they go to a podcast and they go to a place where they can see it. And they will seek it out, even if the algorithm does not smile upon you today. <laughs> so you you see this really primarily as a question of like bottom up change. I mean, of people uh, sort oh, of yeah. taking uh, responsibility for for their own value of, of attention rather than like policy change from the government. Well, we have to have policy change also, mm-hmm. but it, it's necessary but not sufficient because mm-hmm. you could have. I mean, you know, let's say AOC is probably the most technically fluent person in all of Congress. Mm-hmm. There's probably a couple hundred members of Congress that have never installed an app on a smartphone. The idea of them writing a fluent policy that intelligently and effectively holds accountable platforms that are of unprecedented scale is pretty much zero. And if, as is typically the case, they start to bat around policy written by lobbyists, very few of them are that fluent in this stuff either. Like you don't become an effective insider lobbyist because of your technical acumen. Mm -hmm. And that's very vexing to me as somebody who's worked in both policy and and in technology. Like you can't be the person who's like, I have cracked the code on large scale social networking at the billion user scale without centralizing on Facebook. Also, I write policy on the side (laughs) and want to do so like that. I wish that person existed. (laughs) Right. And, And so like until we find that particular you know, leprechaun running wild in the woods. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like, we got to have some other alternatives. <laughs> the other thing is there has to be a place to go. Right. Even if they said, we're going to break it all up, we're going to tear it all down. It's going to be like AT&T 1983. Like, it's going to just like, everything's going to get blown up and we're going to go for this thing. Like, even if all that happens, we still have to have a model of what we're moving towards, not just what we're moving away from. And that's the thing, like, that's my animating force every day. And actually most of the people I know who are like, either old timers who love the web because they're tech nerds, whatever, or new people who are just like, I love creative media. I love a place to express myself, share my ideas, be an activist, organize, teach, whatever it is I do. 
all of those people, young and old, different generations, technically, technically oriented or not, they are all sort of saying, I just want to see this other world. I just want to see this other internet, this other web that is not making me feel creeped out, not making me feel exhausted, not making me feel like a you know, a hamster on a treadwheel of an algorithm. So what do you think is the role of people actually working in the industry on this? I thought one of the most interesting developments in this whole Facebook ad saga was, you know, a few hundred employees writing writing a letter to, to Zuckerberg mm-hmm. saying, oh, you know, I, I didn't like this policy. I mean, I don't think uh, people uh, signing petitions like that really, really does that much. Uh, but it is true that it's a very competitive labor market. Oh, I disagree. I think that's huge. I think the Google walkout is one of the most politically significant moments of the last last five years. Hmm. I, I, I think it is, it is, well, and, and, and the theory here that I have is, you know, technology actually I think really profoundly shapes what happens politically and culturally and entertainment and media wise in really, really deep ways that are not obvious if you don't, you know, live in the tech world. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the ref on the playing field and it chooses what, you know, what plays you're allowed to play. And given that, and that the two most powerful players well, you know, Apple's up there, but there's, they're just different in kind for how their business runs. So like, really, it's Facebook and Google that are dominating this conversation. And Google's always had some sort of a culture of dissent and that sort of old school hacker chaotic whatever. Mm-hmm. And so so the, the fact that the walkout happened there first is not surprising. Uh, that it was so effective uh, is is surprising. And that it's it's led to repercussions that still echo to today is, is, is extraordinary and a tribute to those workers. Facebook, though, is not that place. Facebook is, well, you had to be the kind of person that was like, you can have any web page you want as long as it has a blue bar at the top. Sure. Right. Right. It's very, very much a, you know, top down. You have a rever- you have a reverence for the kind of place that makes a private Ivy League club, right? And and that that selects for a certain culture and a certain personality. And you have to really believe that Mark Zuckerberg is the kind of leader you want and that Facebook's impact on the world is the kind of influence you want to have. And so dissent there is a much bigger deal, much bigger deal than even, almost even than just a protest at, at Google because it, it means that the, the criticisms outside, a decade-long drumbeat, have been so insistent, consistent, persistent that they've been heard even by people inside the most isolated place on the highest pedestal in the industry. That is extraordinary. That is just unbelievable. So what do you think people should do? I mean, if somebody is here, you know, they work at Facebook, they're listening to this mm-hmm. podcast, they're like, hey, these guys are making some good points. Um, like, yeah. well, like, what what should you do? Go go work someplace else? Uh, you know, Yeah, leave and make, make a big stink. Yeah. You know, like, I, I think if you work at Facebook now, mm-hmm. after this performance, after Zuck lied in your face about what the site was made for, to Congress, like then you—that's all you need to know. Mm-hmm. Like if you if you are saying I will countenance obvious public intellectual dishonesty in favor of you know still allowing misinformation on our platform, that's that should be clarifying to you. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, you know, I say this as a CEO of a tech company. It's a great credential to have Facebook on your resume. It still is. Right. People know that means you got some chops and that you 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 know you clear some hurdles and you've seen some shit. So like it's going to be good for you, but that's not going to be true forever. Right. There's a there's a diminishing point. Like if you're on you know the finance team at WeWork, that's less of a credential <laughs> than it was six months ago. Like you're going to get while the getting's good. Yeah, WeWork's very and impressive so, in its way. <laughs> yeah, I mean you, you got skills. They may not be skills that are applicable, <laughs> but but you got them. <laughs> and and so all of that's to say, you know, I I think the the biggest thing that's hard for people to understand because there is no opt out. 
There's no way you cannot be in Google's database and Facebook's database. Because there's no opt-out, there is no lunch counter to boycott. We cannot vote with our feet. We cannot have a sit-in. There is nothing meaningful we can do in the conventional consumer sense to not be complicit in participating in the information ecosystem of Facebook and Google. So what can you do that has impact? Well, the only place that there's high leverage, high cost that they're going to feel in their share price on their bottom line is the cost of acquiring talent. Programmers are the most expensive resource for Facebook. And if programmers say, I am tired of getting dirty looks when I go to a party. I am uh, tired of the way it feels when people look at my LinkedIn profile. (laughs) I am tired of being party to something that I don't feel good about and doesn't meet the optimistic reason that I got into technology in the first place. If that cost becomes high enough, then Facebook will change and literally no policy will have as big an impact, although I care about policy changes. Mm -hmm. No consumer movement will have as big an impact, although I care about consumer movements. The only thing that'll really fundamentally shake them to their core is if they can't hire coders. There you go. So if you meet Facebook people at a party, give them the stink eye. And mm-hmm. It changes the world. Okay. Double dip. <laughs> double dip. Shameless. So, so get, get in that avocado. <laughs> just take. It. All right. So, so before I let you go, I, I was like to ask, uh, what did I miss here? What, what, what should we, what should we have been talking about for the past hour? The biggest thing that I think people don't understand is that this other internet, this other web, is happening, made by unexpected creators doing cool, weird shit. Like the weird internet is still around and thriving. And millions of people are making that that stuff where you, back in the day you used to Google, you know, uh, whatever. I like I like the Friends TV show, and they'd be like, "We cataloged every outfit that Ross wears, <laughs> and here's the colors," you know. And you'd be like, first of all, how do y'all have the time? Second of all, this spreadsheet is amazing." You know what I mean? Like there would just be those sites all over the internet. That stuff is back and in a big way, and it does not get the attention because, understandably, people are focused on okay, is somebody in front of Congress lying to people? But I, I really wish people go and see, and you know, I, I get a front row seat to this because this is a lot of what people do on Glitch, but I think across the web, people are making weird, fun, delightful, joyful stuff that shows that the web is every bit the creative medium that music is, that books are, that film is. And just like there's indie films that make your heart sing and independent artists that are unsigned whose music means something to you, there is an independent creative web that still has that beating heart and soul of what got us hooked on being online in the first place. And if people seek it out, you will feel better than if you simply accept what your newsfeed keeps feeding you. Anil Dash, CEO of Glitch, host of Function. Uh, Check out the show. Tell us a little bit about the show. Yeah. So I host Function, uh, which is a sibling show of the weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. And we are really looking deeply at the ways that tech shapes culture around us. And like, you know, first season, one of the breakout shows that people loved was we're like, how do these dances get into the game Fortnite? And we're talking to Two Millie and he's like, you know, the rapper that invents the dance. And what does it mean to see his dance there and whether he was credited? And then this season, we've gone deep into really this topic that we sort of allude to in this conversation, which is how do you trust the internet? And we talk to people that actually make the apps and make the technology. We talk to activists who are out there sort of saying, this is the impact it has on real people's lives. And we talk to users who are actually affected. One of the recent episodes, we were talking to people that make sentencing software that has helped use to decide you know, in the criminal justice system, whether people are going to be, uh, it, it signs a risk score as to whether they should be able to be out on bail or not. And Function, you know, drops every Wednesday. You go to glitch.com slash Function. We got the new episodes up there. You can subscribe all the usual places. We also were real, real careful. Like we do a full transcript to everything. So there's like some term you don't know that's all in there. Sometimes we even have apps that explain the concepts that we're talking about. 
That's fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And The Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.